Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Conservative Party of Canada Deputy Leader Lisa Raitt tweeted out, it's not solely Jody Wilson-Raybould who need complain about attempted political interference when the whole story is out. Others may complain that the office of the Prime Minister was interfering with the independence of the Attorney General's office. I spoke with Lisa Raitt about that. Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca, is the former Canadian Federation of Independent Business President and CEO. She told me that there is talk about Liberal MPs getting ready to cross the floor to the Conservatives. I spoke with Catherine Swift about that. Writing in the Financial Post, Dr. Jack Mintz, President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, alerted Canadians with this headline and story. Alberta has better reasons for Albexit than Britain did for Brexit. I spoke with Professor Mintz about his thinking. Here's how it went. The National Energy Board recommended that Trans Mountain Extension go forward, but they're giving the government 90 days to decide how and if the pipeline will actually be built. Consultations have to take place with 117 Indigenous communities. Stephen Buffalo is the President and CEO of the Indian Resource Council. He spoke to me about Trans Mountain. Have a listen. With us now is the Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Lisa Raitt, Member of Parliament for Milton, Ontario. I just want to quote a tweet from Ms. Raitt, and uh, it goes this way. It's not solely at Puglas, and that's, of course, Jody Wilson and Raybould. We need complain about attempted political interference when the whole story is out. Others may complain that the office of the Prime Minister was interfering with the independence of the Attorney General's office. Ms. Raitt, thank you for the time. Well, thank you for having me. Can you let's start with your tweet? What do you know? Well, it's not it's what I think right now and what I'm frustrated with in terms of how people are trying to push the story. Um, what I'm seeing from the liberals and what I'm seeing from liberal friendly people on the outside is that they think it's only a matter for the ethics commissioner, but it's not an internal parliamentary matter. I mean, it it is the case that there was political interference and if the stories that the clerk, for example, told us that at legal committee are in fact true and she corroborates them. This is a case where the actual office is being pressured and undermined by the prime minister's office. And that's bigger than an internal ethics committee meeting. And there's also been talk about, and I mentioned this uh, in the last hour, there's been talk about uh, Monsieur Dion, the ethics commissioner, actually... There's some question about whether he should be the ethics commissioner, given the fact the uh, the Liberal Party and the Liberal Cabinet were the ones who selected him without the uh, without the input of the opposition parties, which the law requires. It is a good it is a good point, um, but I have I have some confidence in Mr. Dion because he has found Liberal insiders to be guilty. Um, there was a most recent one where the gentleman Liberal insider was hired to run a Canadian investment uh, organization forgot that he sat on a board of a, of a cannabis-friendly company. And when he was found out, um, the ethics commissioner gave a directive right away. But that's beside the point that I, I know that the NDP want to go to the ethics commissioner on this, but that treats it like an inside baseball something going on. And the prime minister can forgive himself like he forgave himself on the Aga Khan trip. I don't think what has transpired here 
is something that the prime minister and parliament should forgive. This is a significant matter if it shows that he tried to undermine the office. What are you expecting on Tuesday? And do you expect Ms. Wilson-Raybould to attend? Well, I think it's going to be Wednesday, um, Tuesday or Wednesday. I won't know for sure, quite frankly, until I see the notice from the clerk of the committee. And that's what concerns me. I think the sooner we hear from Jody Wilson-Raybould, the the better it's going to be for everybody. And we we know what questions we're going to ask her. We want her to fill in the timeline for us. We want her to tell us why she resigned from Cabinet. And if she can tell us why Gerald Butts decided to resign, we'd appreciate that too. But I guess we'll have to wait to hear from Gerald Butts. Why do you suppose Mr. Trudeau and the PMO were or are so engaged in the SNC-Lavalin case? Is it just jobs? Is it Quebec votes? Is it something else? Can you share some thoughts with us on that? Being a partisan, I will tell you that I do believe that there are political considerations regarding the election that's happening in the fall, this fall. And I think that it played into their desire to push a process forward more quickly than it should have. They're trying to get rid of this uh, this matter before they head to the polls here in Canada. And why I think it is a political issue is because they could have waited for the process to unfold naturally. And at the very end, after they go through a court case, they could have waived how long they weren't allowed to bid, for example, if they're the government. But they wanted to make the attorney general do it through the back door so their fingerprints wouldn't be on it. And that's what makes this stink. Because right from the beginning, they were attempting to do something without being seen to be doing it. What they were trying to avoid was having an uncomfortable conversation in Quebec about SNC-Lavalin no longer having their headquarters in Montreal, perhaps. I'm glad you used the word partisan, and uh, it's very seldom that I actually hear a politician say, you know, we we take a partisan position. Usually it's, uh, oh, no, I'm, I'm, you know, we're doing this all above board, and most Canadians are, you know, we're, we're sophisticated to know that you represent a, a philosophy or a party or a position, and, and I appreciate you said that. Now, given that, and we have partisanship on both sides of this, of this issue going forward, is there any way to satisfy the public need to know without a either a public uh, inquiry or an independent investigation? No, not at all. Because what I've seen on the inside is the Liberals on the Justice Committee um, doing the bidding of the Prime Minister's office, either fully believing him and, and full-throated singing the fact that he's, he is telling the truth, or avoiding witnesses that we want to come and give us the sides of the story. And it's a bit ridiculous that the only story we get to hear is that of the Prime Minister or the Clerk of the Privy Council. There's a lot of other people who were involved in these conversations. Chief of Staff to Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jody Wilson-Raybould herself, Jerry Butts, Katie Telford, they're all part of these conversations. And if they're not going to tell us in the Justice Committee because the Liberals voted down, then there should be a public inquiry and there should be some other way of dealing with it. And it could, whatever investigations may come, it I don't think we're at the point where we can just turn a blind eye and hope that Parliament deals with this, because I fear that the Liberal majority will just try to cover their tracks. I wonder about a public inquiry, because the Prime Minister may be able to influence who participates in a public inquiry, but an independent investigation, there would be no, I wouldn't think there would be any way for the PMO to get engaged. No, I, you know, the, the most would be the terms of reference, and, and the terms of reference in this would be straightforward and extremely clear. Because it's, uh, it's all about determining what happened and whether or not there was political influence. Do I think the Prime Minister will ask one of his committees to do that? I doubt it. 
but we're going to continue to press the matter and we'll see what answers we get this week we're we have a a motion tomorrow an opposition day motion that our leaders going to be starting uh kicking off the debate on and that's about making sure that we get the right people at the committee to at least tell their story the more facts we have the better but the more facts we get i do think that the worse this looks that it really is a case of badgering the attorney general until she gave the right answer and when she didn't give the right answer they fired her 20 days later to replace her with a guy who probably would give them the right answer they were looking for it was impossible to not uh, read the body language on the 14th of january when the former attorney general became the veterans affairs uh, minister it was impossible to misread the body language now i ask you one last question uh, do you have any hint of any liberal MPs who are perhaps fed up with the current situation, might be considering either crossing the floor or sitting as independents? Wow, I, I heard that in your introduction, and it certainly got my ears, ears up. No one's reached out to me, I can tell you. But here we are. We're seven months away from the next federal election, and they have to go to their constituents and ask for them to be trusted. And, you know, at the at the heart of the matter here, it's about... Do you trust this government in the midst of such a cover-up and using every resource they can to protect themselves? How can an MP look at their constituent and say, are you going to trust me again? So I wouldn't be surprised if they've had it. We're very, you know, Leon Auslev, who came over to us, um, truly had conservative values, and she came over of her own accord, and we're happy to have her. And if there's other folks who believe that they they value conservative values and want to come over, I'm sure the appropriate questions can can ha- oh, sorry, the appropriate conversations can happen. Well, uh, I would ask you then to, uh, well, thank you for joining us and uh, listen to our next guest uh, on, on the radio. I because, will, Catherine, you, yeah. you, you know Catherine Swift. Yes, I do. I have so, great respect for her. Uh, she's a, an amazing person, and uh, she's going to share with us more of that information without, well, she can't tell us who it is, but she'll, she'll talk more about what she knows. Thank you, Ms. Ray. Good talking to you. Hope you'll come back. I certainly will, and I'm looking forward to hearing from Catherine. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa Raitt. Catherine Swift is back with us, our good friend and contributor for so long to Beauties and the Beast, and it was uh, yesterday's segment of Beauties and the Beast. We still uh, reconvene periodically. And Catherine, you said something toward the end of the program that had me sitting straight up, and apparently a lot of listeners as well, when you pointed out that uh, you've heard from someone you respect in, in Ottawa that there are liberal members of parliament who are considering saying adios? Yes, I did indeed, Roy, and I just listened to your interview with Lisa. And um, naturally, you know, you you can't talk about these things. They're said in confidence. But it's hardly shocking, is it? Uh, And by the way, it was more than one person, just for the record, more than one liberal MP. Um, And... uh, the the real you know the real politic for politicians is are they going to get reelected and things are not looking very good right now we have yet to see the vice admiral uh, you know norman case uh, really reach its full potential exactly. uh, negative as that's likely to be for liberals and so yeah that the, i did hear from someone uh, uh, you know very well placed shall we say that that uh, that conversations are going on now so again i don't find it surprising at all um, and i heard lisa mention leona alice love and i know leona she i didn't actually know her before recently but she actually is in a riding just a bit south to where i live in the in the 905 around toronto and um, it was very interesting to hear her take on why she crossed the floor. 
And I, like I say, I didn't know her, but I must say I was very impressed. And, and it was a very principled position she had as to why she made that move. And we did see two Liberal MPs vote against the motion in the House of Commons last week to have a public inquiry, or actually vote in favor of it, vote against their Liberal colleagues, I should say. Um, so there are some cracks showing in Fortress Liberal. You know, it's interesting that you, you say that because Dan McTague was on with us with Michelle Simpson, who's, uh, of course, on with you and Linda, the beauties, uh, last weekend. And Dan said, don't be surprised. And we were talking about the one Liberal MP from Atlantic Canada who said he's not going to run again on the, in October. Mm-hmm. And Dan said, don't be surprised if more follow him. So, Indeed. Yeah, and, well, and it's not surprising. It right? isn't I mean, surprising. People look at their own personal fortunes, and as we all do and should, and um, whether they bow out. And that, lib- that liberal from the Atlantic region was only a one-term MP. And I think we have to realize here, that last election, there was a wave of liberals that got in, some on pretty slim margins. And there was definitely a Trudeau wave. There's no doubt about it. And there's a not, there's going, I would predict... <laughs> Uh, at this time, I'd even put some serious money down on it, that there's going to be an awful lot of one-term liberal MPs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are probably evaluating right now, gee, should I work my butt off? Because they do work hard. I mean, let's not, you know, let's not... uh, And some of them may be involuntary. Should I I work so hard and then just get creamed in the election in October? Yeah. I'm not surprised uh, at at the news that you've shared with us. I'm I'm not surprised at all because it has seemed to me, given given incidents that we've reported on and talked about for over the last three years, there must be liberal members of parliament who are saying this is just not right. Exactly. This is just also, not I mean, acceptable. I know some of the longer-term people because when I was CFID president, I dealt with them, you know, quite regularly. Course, yeah. And and a lot of them, frankly, are decent people, honorable people, and I can't imagine they're not asking themselves right now what has happened to my Liberal Party. Because the Liberals today, I heard somebody say the other day, and I thought this was funny, Justin Trudeau is our first NDP Prime Minister. (laughs) Of course, he's not technically. But what they were saying is he's gone so far to the left, he's not really in traditional Liberal territory No, he isn't. And the NDP aren't in traditional NDP territory. No, No, exactly. So I, I can't imagine there's not even just recent liberal, you know, MPs, but long-term ones that aren't really wondering what's going on with the party right now. And it's ugly. And the the, the, the Admiral, Vice Admiral Norman thing, it's going to get uglier over the next it little is. while. It is. And the Prime Minister and, uh, and uh, Ms. Telford and Mr. Butts uh, may have to show up. Well, and we also know a long-term, you know, sort of simmering resentment in caucus and notably backbenchers was that nobody could get at Trudeau without going through Butts and Telford. Yeah, yeah. There was a big centralization of power in the prime minister's yeah. office, and people don't like that, and not surprising. No, because you, as you pointed out, you have to go to the people, you have to go to your constituents, and you have to say you have to be able to trust me. And if you're, exactly. if you're, if you're thrown, uh, constantly being thrown balls, you can't hit. Because, you know, they're just, you just can't do it because you can't provide the answers. It's not something that you can sustain. Now, I don't want to press you. Yes, I do. Um, (laughs) Are we talking about, so you're saying we're talking about more than one liberal? Yeah, that's what I heard. Okay. Through the grapevine. Okay. More than one liberal crossing the floor. Okay. And And conversations were ongoing. And conversations are ongoing. Boy, this this would be a time for. For that to take place, wouldn't it? It would. And like I say, in, in my own view, things are not going to get any better in the next few months. So 
Could be even more. <laughs> do you sense anything? And we have about a minute here. Do you sense? Do you have a feeling? We talked about this a little bit yesterday. Is there any parallel to the early days of the sponsorship scandal? Not not the content, but just the emotional level. Well, I think there are a number of parallels. Certainly, emotional is one of them. And the Quebec factor, we can't rule out the Quebec factor true. being a hugely significant one. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, that, uh, that annoys much of the rest of the country. So uh, there's that. The other thing with the sponsorship, which is similar to this, it was kind of that drip, drip, drip. You got part of the story, and then there was another part. And then there was another part. It was the peeling the onion kind of analogy. And this one, I don't think we're anywhere near the middle of the onion yet. No, no. It will be fascinating, and it will be impactful if Ms. Wilson-Raybould does appear before the Justice Committee next week, Tuesday or Wednesday, and has an opportunity to tell her truth, or some of it. This this week will be very, very telling. And if Trudeau doesn't uh, get rid of the, the, the you know, doesn't remove privilege, wow, I think that's going to be incendiary. Catherine, always great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Roy. Catherine Swift. Former CFIB president and CEO, and uh, you can go to workingcanadians.ca, workingcanadians.ca, and you can communicate with Catherine there and become engaged with workingcanadians.ca. Alb Exit, and uh, joining me on the program is uh, from the University of Calgary, Professor Jack Mintz. And uh, he's a President's Fellow at the School of Public Policy at the UFC. And he alerted Canadians with this headline story in the Financial Post. Alberta has better reasons for Albexit than uh, Britain did for Brexit. And I was reading headlines today that the Prime Minister of England, Theresa May, is in, uh, she's in pretty deep water as they get closer to the March 29th uh, exit date for the UK to leave the EU. Professor Mintz, thanks very much for the time. Uh, my pleasure. Where'd you come up with Albexit? <laughs> well, it was uh, it was a bit of a coin of phrase on on Brexit, but uh, uh, the story behind that actually is that uh, my wife and I were out for uh, actually I was at a conference in Oxford at, uh, in uh, in December, and as I came back and we had uh, seen these demonstrations in favor of brexit uh, in london and i was thinking about well you know uh you know when you think of what britain uh is uh thinking about in terms of leaving the european union uh you know whether it stays part of the european union or not it it, it doesn't face what i would call an existential threat to its uh, sovereignty it will still remain united kingdom uh, no matter what uh, in fact uh, even under the European Union, had all sorts of independence, uh, particularly with respect to taxation and and a whole bunch of other policies. And uh, you know, it was a uh, you know, it certainly you know, the the country won't disappear, whether or not it's part of the European Union. Uh, but in the case of Alberta, uh, as I was thinking about it, you know, the if there is a if there is a, an attempt, uh, more than an attempt, but success at uh, shutting down uh, the whole oil and gas industry. Uh, uh, in the next while, and and Albertans suffer uh, tremendously as a result. Then I think that is uh, very much an existential threat to the province because uh, you know it uh, really means hard times for many people, losing incomes, losing jobs, uh, everything else, and it's a much more serious thing uh, than um, you know whether it's, you know certain types of regulations and that are imposed by the European Union on Britain or you know 
Britain's part of, actually, they have to agree unanimously with them. Uh, whether, uh, you know, that's a, uh, anywhere as serious as what Alberta is facing right now. And so that's uh, the reason why I coined the term Albexit, and I said, well, you know, the way some people are feeling now in Alberta and the increased interest in separation in Alberta is that this is a very serious issue for uh, for Canada as a whole, and uh, Canadians are going to have to start waking up or else uh, we could see tensions in Western Canada that uh, we haven't seen for some time. I don't think the rest of the country gets it. Oh, I agree with you. Uh, you know, and you can even see it with uh, the convoy that went to Ottawa this past week. Uh, you know, the main point of that convoy was to talk about oil and gas, and and uh, and you know, just you know, you know, we're interested in maybe moving to low carbon societies, but these things won't take place over time. And no country in the world is trying to shut down its oil and gas industry uh, by constraining pipelines, as what's happening right now in Canada. And I think the convoy was, uh, you know, reflecting a great deal of frustration right now uh, with um, federal leadership and other provinces that are uh, really trying to hurt, uh, you know, hurt hurt Alberta. And uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, you know, a lot of people from, ex- you know, let's say some of the commentators, you know, tend to focus on other things that people may have said as part of that convoy, which uh, I think, uh, you know, was a, det- a distraction, but I think also a way of belittling uh, the effort. And yet, as uh, the leader said, you know, they were amazed by the welcoming they got in Ontario as they went through the province. Uh, so there's still a lot to be done in terms of uh, people getting to understand that uh, this is a real serious issue for Alberta is now facing. You know, I've said before, and I, I tweeted it out, that when it comes to the average person, and I'm, I focused on emails that I received from Ontario, but I could extend it beyond uh, to other provinces, uh, people who listen to this program, not people who have a political role or or any uh, anything any vested interest in any political party, just listen to the show, hear other people's stories. And what I hear here, and I was focusing on Ontario particularly, was about, I say 99% of people who contact me have a lot of empathy for the folks in Alberta who are struggling and who are in difficulty. And I think it's very wise for this country to pay very close attention because the recent series of Angus Reid polls on Western Canadian attitudes shows there's a strong sense of Ottawa treating the West unfairly, particularly Alberta unfairly, and that's not something that should be ignored or made light of, as some people did with that convoy, as you pointed out, people driving thousands of miles to go to Ottawa to make a point. No, I think that's uh, that's right. And I think, uh, you know, the issues are also complex, which I think is uh, part of the difficulty in understanding it. But, uh, you know, if you talk to... Uh, you know, the, uh, a lot of the people that are in the industry or, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, is being faced right now, well, they might appreciate the federal government trying to push through Trans Mountain. We'll see what happens um, uh, with that. Uh, they, they look at a lot of other federal policies that has been blocking oil and gas development, including the, the tanker ban off, um, off the northern part of the British uh, Columbia coast, uh, which killed Northern Gateway. Uh, the changes in regulation, um, uh, which is basically usurping uh, power from the National Energy Board uh, that's in Calgary to a new board that's going to be sitting in Ottawa that's going to be made up of whoever kind of people are going to be on that board, uh, but really don't necessarily know much about the oil and gas sector uh, and other um, resource sectors like mining and forestry, et cetera, uh, are going to be sitting on an environmental uh, board that's... Uh, going to have uh, a lot of power uh, and uh, and people are really quite concerned about that uh, 
and they saw with Energy East how changes in regulation uh, along the way of the application ended up killing the project. Um, and so, uh, you know, Albertans are, are, are very concerned, and particularly they're concerned over uh, what's called Bill C-69, which mm-hmm. is this new regulatory regime of the federal government, uh, which is uh, being fought right now in the Senate. Uh, and, uh, and there's a real deep, deep concern that if this bill goes through, uh, this will pretty well kill off any interest in pipeline applications in Canada, although I think it's more than just oil and gas that's involved with that. I think it's other resource sectors that should wake up and be very concerned about the kind of process that's going to be involved with regulation under Bill C-69, which is going to be, <laughs> it's amazing, actually. Proponents are going to have to, for example, do gender analysis when they're proposing, you know, whether they're building a plant or putting in a pipeline or whatever. Uh, they're going to have to do all sorts of other things, which... Uh, is very unusual. You don't find that in any other country. Usually, these social and economic, social issues that are, are important uh, are hived off and and, uh, and and dealt with with other policies and and not part of an application process for for building a, a plant. Yeah, and uh, and and there's also the issue of of the uh, and I want to get at some other points about what would happen if Albertans were to decide to take that step. Uh, but there's also the issue of the equalization payments, where you have Quebec now has been given an extra one or awarded an extra $1.6 billion in equalization payments. They're somewhere around the 70% mark of the total of equalization payments. I know that doesn't sit particularly well, well at all in, in your province. Uh, no, not really. I mean, right now, Alberta uh, has, uh, as I pointed out in another article that I did, has, um, and this is not my work, this is done by, by uh, a colleague and some others, say, they have, uh, between 1961 and uh, 2017, uh, Alberta has contributed uh, in 2017 dollars, you know, to sort of t- deal with inflation. Um, uh, in 2017 dollars, they have contributed $611 billion to the rest of the country. Equalization, believe it or not, is actually only part of that, just 7% of that total transfer to the rest of the country. Uh, in fact, a big portion of it is uh, personal income taxes. Uh, but a third of it. And so uh, Alberta has been a cash cow for the rest of the country uh, over the past 50 years. And uh, and uh, Albertans uh, don't mind doing that. They understand that they've benefited from having higher incomes and higher higher resources, and that hasn't been a major issue of contention. But I think now over the past number of years, when you know things have been tough in Alberta since 2015, the Albertans are feeling they're getting kicked in the face uh, instead of... Um, you know, instead of getting some sympathy after all that they've given to the rest of the country. And so I think there is very much an anger there. And, in fact, when Quebec got an extra $1.4 billion in equalization, uh, that was just, uh, you know, another kick at the can, so to speak. Well, when you, when, you, when you mentioned $611 billion, the first thought that came to my mind, that's almost the national debt. It is. It is almost the federal national net debt of the federal government. Yeah. And... Uh, and in fact, you know, imagine if Alberta actually said, uh, you know, we're going to separate. And by the way, since we've given the rest of the country so much money, uh, we're not going to take any of that federal debt. We're not going to be responsible for it. That's that's the rest of the country they can pay for it. We already paid over the past number of years. So you can imagine the contention that you could have over that sort of thing. Right, so let me, let me bring this up. Um, th- there's a lot of benefits to being part of Canada, and I know Albertans would, ag- would agree with that. Uh, m- currently, there's, as you point out, there's, a, there's frustration and anger among many in the province, but your critics argue that Alberta is landlocked. So 
It would then, if it were to declare itself uh, independent of the rest of the country, a sovereignty, a uh, vote would take place. We then have to deal with an angry Canada or a frustrated Canada, which would not be in a mood necessarily to get along. Alberta would face tariffs on products and good luck with pipelines for an independent Alberta is the argument. What are the critics missing? Well, I think what they're missing is the following. Uh, and it goes back to the point that I made in the article. that it, this, I could see uh, many Albertans getting, uh, starting to move towards separation if they feel that there's an existential threat to the province. This is the big difference. And in other words, yeah, Alberta's already landlocked <laughs> and is already having difficulty. And if, uh, and if nothing gets resolved, uh, then, then uh, one of the huge benefits of being part of a, of a federation uh, starts getting removed for El- for Albertans. In fact, it's even worse than that. It's, it's that it, it becomes a major cost because the rest of uh, Confederation is not willing to allow the province to grow, and and that becomes an existential threat. And you know, people forget there's also a southern border, and of course, uh, you know, Alberta could actually have more independence as a separate country in setting up uh, its own tariffs. Uh, imagine with. British Columbia that's shipping natural gas right now through Alberta, Alberta can put a tax on that coming through the province. Uh, it could do all sorts of other things that it can't do right now. I'm not saying Alberta should. In fact, I'm definitely not a separatist myself. Uh, but I'm just saying that if, the, if there's an existential threat to the province, mm-hmm. in fact, it might be better off separate than, than staying part of a confederation in which the rest of the country has absolutely no sens- sensitivity and is not willing to support the province at a time when it needs support. Well, we have a, a premier in Quebec who uh, doesn't seem to have a problem with tankers on the St. Lawrence River bringing oil from places like Saudi Arabia. Uh, they go to the refineries in New Brunswick, uh, the Irving Refinery in St. John being one, 800,000 barrels a day. And yet uh, Premier Legault, who's a former Parti Quebecois uh, minister, uh, said he doesn't want dirty Alberta energy, and essentially that was the, uh, the, the argument, or at least that's what killed Energy East. Um, putting all these things together, and we have about two minutes left in our conversation, is there an appetite in Alberta, a growing appetite, to consider separating from the rest of the country? I think the answer is um, yes and no. I mean, I, I think right now, I think by and large, most, most Albertans would not want to separate. In fact, the polls kind of show about 30% interest, which is not the same thing as saying they, they're in favor of separating. Um, but uh, but I think that uh, it, it has grown. And there are groups, in, actually in Alberta, that are now putting up signs talking about separation and uh, and actually willing to uh, to push for it. So I think, I think it's something which uh, I, I think doesn't necessarily have to happen if the rest of Canada actually responds, I think, better than the way they have. Uh, to 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 Alberta, just like you know, the rest of Canada responded to Quebec to keep Quebec part of Canada, mm-hmm. and and we've now largely succeeded in that. Uh, but now I think it's time for paying a little more attention to Alberta's problems. I found it interesting that uh, an Alberta court, uh, and I'm just reading from a global news story here, judges dismissed the British Columbia government's request to declare an Alberta law that could restrict the flow of refined oil products to BC as unconstitutional. So there's an Alberta court making a very interesting and compelling uh, uh, argument or, or position. At 30 seconds here, you've also said that uh, the federal government had better pay attention to, to, the, to the notion of Alberta leaving. 
Well, I think so because you know the uh, you know as I said, you know the Alberta's been a cash cow for the rest of the country, yeah. and uh, and I think uh, you know uh, separation is. Uh, Never a good thing. It's gonna, it would really hurt, but you know that's happened over time. Many countries have done it. Norway right. and Sweden, for example, in right. 1905. Professor Mensch, I have to uh, stop you there because because of the anyway. clock. But thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, thank good you. Good talking to you, Bye-bye. Professor Jack Mensch from the University of uh, Calgary. You can find his uh, article, his column in the Financial Post. Alberta has better reasons for Albexit than Britain did for Brexit, and the UK is teetering on the edge of March 29th with the, the uh, national government in Britain. Uh, well, they're at each other's proverbial throats over this. Let's talk about this decision by the National Energy Board that the uh, federal government can go forward, in fact, recommending that uh, for the interests of Canada, the Trans Mountain Extension be built and um, and. And 90 days, the government has 90 days to make its decision. There are consultations to take place with 117 indigenous communities, and there are also conditions applied for the uh, safeguarding of marine life. Joining me is Stephen Buffalo. He's the president and CEO of the Indian Resource Council. Uh, Mr. Buffalo, thank you very much for the time. What's your council's reaction to the fundamental decision by the NEB? Well, you know, we haven't really had a discussion since the announcement, but uh, just between uh, uh, some of our, a couple of our board members, you know, there there seems to be a little bit of optimism. Obviously, uh, it's very conditional still, and I I can see that there's still a lot of work to be done. So um, we'll see how that all entails. What would you have liked to have seen? What uh, would have been your preference as far as the announcement by the NEB was concerned? Well, obviously, we definitely wanted to see something more positive in, in regards to not only our communities, but uh, for, for the nation in itself, that, you know, we can see this type of project move on. But, you know, saying that, obviously, there's a, there's still a contingency that wants to see the project not go through. And I think now we got to start working together to fill the gaps and build some more capacity and understand the importance of this uh, so what kind of communication will there be between the IRC and the Indigenous community leaders who've said no? Well, yeah, obviously there's some, some reach out, uh, but right now the Indian Resource Council, you know, is very limited in regards to some resources to, to that type of uh, uh, work. But, uh, you know, we're going to try our best to, to definitely, again, to uh, build some capacity with understanding what this whole project means. Uh, but, you know, uh, it's... it's uh, it starts with relationship, and, and in, the, in the spirit of spir- the spirituality of this is that yes, we want to protect our earth, we want to protect the environment, but in the same time, you know, we uh, I, I think people need to understand the, some of the barriers that First Nations community have in dealing with the Indian Act and the limited uh, resources we have. So you know, having this opportunity will be very beneficial for everyone. It'll help the the economy of everybody, right? Absolutely. You know, like I said, you know, if you understand the Indian Act and how it's so much a barrier for some of our, our communities, um, having a different source of uh, resources and, 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 and actually income to, to, to kind of attack those social issues, um, I, I, it, it's definitely very positive. But we got to find that balance between protecting the environment and the economics. Like, they should not be on either side of the uh, spectrum. And it's our job to kind of bring them together. And, you know, but it's going to take some time. It's going to take some communication. 
Do you have trust in the political process and the politicians? They've got 90 days. This government has 90 days to make a decision whether the Duke goes forward or not. And my the, the, the cynic in me says there'll be polling and what's going to be most advantageous to us, and that's the decision they will make. Right. You know, uh, 90 days isn't a long time. It isn't. And, and, and you know what? Uh, again, we just recently met with the Deputy Minister of uh, Natural Resources Canada, uh, explained who we are again, and, and really put our, our our foot forward to say we're here to help. You know, we we want to see some development, uh, utilize this as a resource. You know, and uh, and I think you know that's that's the start of it. And and I, and I got some positive feedback from that, but again, you know, they still got to we have a long way to go in such a short period of time. But you know, all we can do is. Uh, do our best and then hope that, you know, things can come to a justified situation. Can you remind us who makes up the Indian Resource Council? Well, we uh, represent approximately 134 uh, oil and gas producing nations and also that have the potential to produce oil and gas. And uh, we've been advocating for them with government and industry since 1980. And it's, it's, it's really grown to uh, something a little bit bigger. Obviously, we... We try, we're modernizing the Indian Oil and Gas Act. We work with the uh, federal arm of the Indian Oil and Gas Canada. And uh, obviously seeing the, the price differential with no market access is, is certainly hurting our, our, our producers. You know, they, they feel it. And it's, uh, we, we gotta, we're doing our best to try to change that for them. And, you know, we talk about taking care of the environment. Well, the oil is going to move, and at the moment it's going to be, you know, it's rail cars. Rail cars, conventional thinking is, and I'm a conventional thinker in this regard, not as, not nearly as safe as, as pipelines and the pipeline technology <coughs> of today. And the tankers that are used today, they're double, they're, most of them, the new ones, are all double-hauled. Absolutely. You know, uh, we just seen a recent accident in Manitoba uh, just outside of... Uh, Calgary had, or just outside of Banff, you know, there was another derailment. And of course, that all poses, you know, some some fear in harming the environment in itself. Uh, and again, you know, having that capacity to understand what these pipelines are, are a lot safer. And when, when there is an incident with pipelines, nine times out of ten, it's, it's because it's very old or, or there's human error involved in regards to uh, any accidents that may have happened. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of uh, arguments that we can have all day about safety and, and protecting the environment and, and moving this. And, you know, obviously you get into the argument about, well, you know, the, uh, the, the, the trains will produce more carbon emissions, greenhouse gases, <laughs> than the pipeline. So, you know, there's a whole sector that you can spend all day debating. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's about your own ability to understand and the need, you know, we, we live in a very contemporary time. Uh, and, and some of the asks of some of the, uh, the people that want us to stop, the, uh, uh, the environmental people, uh, we, we take into account their, their argument and their concern. But in the same sense, we can't go backwards. We can't live in teepees and have wood-burning stoves, let alone ride a horse around every, everywhere. Uh, you know, the end, of, the end of the day, everyone needs this uh, natural gas to, to heat their homes, especially here in Calgary. It's been very chilly. And uh, I, I can't ever ask anyone to go that way and to take the lead and say, you know what, go backwards in time if you really have it about it, because that's really unfair to them. It's just, you know, get finding that balance between the economic and, 
and the environmental concerns. Yeah, and and really, when you look at the uh, the economic uh, benefits, they benefit people throughout society, like healthcare. If you have billions of dollars coming in from your energy resources and you're selling them on the international marketplace, which is which wants them. Then you can you can really uh, underpin your social programs. You can underpin your country's economic realities. Ultimately, you can do a lot of good with that money. Oh, absolutely! You know, we we want to build uh, <clears throat> some capacity. You know, within ourselves. You know, uh, like I said, if you understand the Indian Act, the federal funding each community receives is very limited, and with our populations growing, there's definitely need for housing. And nine times out of ten, our infrastructure needs improvement, you know, to, to move water. And so it's there's always that, that hope. And then there's a lot of social issues that we still haven't dealt with that need to be uh, looked at. So, you know, we, we just want to see if we can continue to build that. And you know what? If we can find a way to, to be participant in this Trans Mountain Pipeline and, and we see the economic benefits, you know, and, and we set you know, kind of things in motion that it, it's positive for all, everyone involved, the government, the industry, and First Nations, it's going to set a precedent to go the other way, to go east. So, you know, that's, again, if it's for the benefit of our people, it, it, it should be able to be looked at and something we should go forward with. Mr. Buffalo, thank you for the time. Always appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Stephen Buffalo, who is the President and CEO of the Indian Resource Council. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.